I would ask that we remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. You'll find that in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 9 as we continue on with the exposition, straight talk about Jesus Christ. This morning we come to verses 30 through 33. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, let us hear and attend to the word of God. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you were disputing among yourselves on the road? And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. A common challenge among professing Christian believers from generation to generation is hearing and agreeing on the plain statements of Scripture. Those self-evident statements, those indicative uh, declarations that are set out for us as statements of fact from Scripture. Here's one that still amazes me. Jesus said that the earthly temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon another when the apostles were admiring it. And he was saying, you don't get it. This is over. God's canceling this out. Uh, At Jesus' death, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And the scriptures tell us that the glory of God departed and the, the presence of the veil as Jesus exalted and glorified in heaven. Through the veil of his flesh, we have that transcendence into the presence of God. And the apostles write and tell us, both Peter and Paul, that the temple is not in Jerusalem or the earthly Jerusalem. It's heavenly Jerusalem, and the true temple is the people of God, a living temple, a temple not of of stones and bricks and mortar, a, a, a temple of living worshipers. Jesus told the woman at the well, God is seeking those to worship him in spirit and truth, not in Jerusalem, not on Mount Gerizim, not in earthly location, but relocated to heaven. And as such, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that any attempt to reinstitute old covenant ways of worship is an offense to God. Plain and simple. Plain and clear talk from Scripture. And yet, I don't doubt there are well-meaning but foolish Christian believers who would send money to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So this is the bewilderment that we have from generation to generation with Christians disputing and confused over plain statements from Scripture. Here's some good advice from the Westminster Confession of Faith. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but unlearned in due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So the way and meaning of salvation is self-evident, It's indicative and declaratory from the Holy Scriptures, and it is accessible to be known. It's not confusing. It's not uh, muddled up, at least from what Scripture says. So we continue on this morning now in 
uh, Mark chapter 9. It's a long chapter and we've been going through it. We come this morning to another section, verses 30 through 37. We won't cover all of those verses this morning. But this gives us another example in record of the 12 apostles before the resurrection responding to Jesus' persistent teaching about his coming betrayal, violent death, and supernatural resurrection. Jesus is persistently teaching them this. He's telling them this over and over. So how did the 12 apostles receive this disturbing revelation? This is, by way, prophetic word of God. What Jesus was teaching them, what Jesus was saying to them, was the prophetic word of God. And how did they receive it? Well, the gospel accounts tell us they were dismayed. They were troubled and afraid to consider what Jesus was saying. They were disconcerted. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't have a category that they could put that in as they thought and and considered it. And they were distracted. They tried to change the subject. Let's talk about something else. This is too disturbing. But this was Jesus' straight talk that is essential to the meaning of the gospel of the kingdom of God in heaven. Again, things that are stated very plainly and very clearly and that are essential. That's why Jesus was continuing to to hammer it and to um, repeat it to them. In verses 30 through 37, remember we're still in the context of the transfiguration. After the transfiguration, coming down from the mountain and and the episodes at the bottom of the mountain there and now in a, a transferring location. This is still though within the scope of what just had happened regarding Jesus and the transfiguration. Jesus transfigured as the uh, Christ, the Son of God. And from this section of verses 30 through 37, Jesus is teaching his apostles and us that the Christian gospel inverts and overpowers the world's power structures and struggles in terms of the kingdom of God in heaven. We really need to listen to this. We get so entangled and caught up in the world's power structures and struggles, even in our Christian faith, and we need to understand how the Christian gospel inverts and overpowers the world's power struggles, structures and struggles. But in terms of faith, and that's so contrary to what we want to be satisfied in terms of our flesh. And so verses 30 and 31 this morning, the actions of Jesus are grammatically expressed for us. I want to bear this out to you because his actions are intentional and persistent. The same grammatical structure is used regarding his geographical direction and relocation, his restricting public notice, and his theological teaching. The emphasis from the, from the text is that this is intentional and persistent on Jesus' part. Look at verses 30 and 31. And they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it, for he taught his disciples. So intentional and persistent is Jesus' actions uh, in this. The relocation to Capernaum was not a leisurely trip back through his old home region of Galilee. Uh, On the way back, Jesus is not saying, oh, let's stop off and see some friends. Or, oh, here, uh, let me tell you about when I was a boy, what happened at at this location when we were uh, harvesting some wood. No, this is not a leisurely visit back through his old stomping grounds. There is an intention and a persistence in Jesus moving them from where they were, 
maybe up around Caesarea Philippi. We don't know exactly where they were, but uh, up north of um, the Sea of Galilee and moving back now to through Galilee to Capernaum. And that's in, instructive for us in terms of just Jesus' actions in this way are also the same description that is given regarding his intention that this not be a public ministry. He said he didn't want anybody to know about it. This is just for his instruction of the apostles and not for others to be coming in and seeking healing or teaching from him. Jesus is intent and persistent on this being a time of him having this um, uh, uh, purpose with his apostles. And so the same grammatical um, function is used to talk about Jesus repeatedly rehearsing the main lessons of the gospel. I wanted you to see how that kind of fits together. Jesus is intent and persistent about moving location, about not having public ministry in this time, and about what he is repeatedly and uh, persistently rehearsing about the main lessons of the gospel to his apostles. And, and this is what I want you to think about. It only takes a moment to read this, doesn't it? I read a couple of verses to you. This was something that took a day or so and what we're being told is that the whole day they were moving, if it took a day or a day and a half, I don't know exactly how long it took them to get there, but the purpose here is that all along the way, Jesus is intently rehearsing and pressing them. He didn't just say this one time, oh, uh, I'm going to be betrayed and they're going to kill me in a violent execution, and, but I'm going to r- rise on the third day. No, it's that this was an ongoing thing that Jesus was pressing upon them. And it's really important that you get that. I mean, this was like a whole day or longer that this was going on as they were traveling. So the main lessons of the gospel should be repeatedly rehearsed as the intentional and persistent interpretive key for ongoing public worship with theological applications. But this includes more than referencing all scripture to the passion narrative. That's how I think often this is just simply sort of surface um, approached. When we talk about the repeated and rehearsed, intentional and persistent uh, preaching of the gospel, it's more than simply trying to reference every scripture passage in scripture to to the passion narrative. And I think there's a useful example here found by noticing Jesus' didactic method. Jesus was continually, ongoing, repeating, and teaching. And he was repeatedly and ongoing teaching them in the context of the moral law of God. What did Jesus say? I am going to be betrayed. That is what? False witness. I am going to be violently uh, murdered. That is unjust or unlawful killing. So Jesus is setting this out for them. And it's more than, as I said, simply a, uh, just a, trying to associate every scripture to the passion narrative. But then Jesus counters this as well with the good news of divine intervention. When he says, I will r- rise again the third day. And here, this is revealed through, as I said, the prophetic word of God. Jesus is prophesying to them. He is giving the prophetic word of God. He's giving them promise. 
Even when this event is historically fulfilled, the promise will continue. That's what empowers the gospel. That's why we started back in Mark chapter 1 with the preaching, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now historically, this has taken place. This prophetic word has come about. Jesus has been betrayed, killed, and resurrected. You and I look back upon that, but the promise of the gospel continues with the power and the presence of the resurrection so that we are preaching Christ alive, Christ resurrected, and all of this must be engaged by faith. And so we call upon people everywhere to believe, to engage the message of the gospel by faith. So note, if you will, verse 32 in the apostles' response. And he came to Capernaum. I'm sorry, uh, verse 32. Oh, well, um, yeah, verse 32. But they did not understand his saying and were afraid to ask him. So the apostles' response is disappointing. But it is instructive for how Scripture is to be understood and believed. The apostles are also grammatically described in the same way as persistent. It's an interesting connection with the grammar of the text here. So as Jesus was insistent and repeated to them this lesson and wanted to, to get down into their heart and, and into their mind, so we find the apostles here are also described as being also persistent as agnostic unwilling. And what I mean by agnostic here is just simply a transliteration from the Greek, not that they doubted that God existed, but they didn't want to know what Jesus was saying. They had a stubborn resistance They were unwilling. They wanted to remain ignorant. Basically, they were putting their fingers in their ears and saying, we really don't want to hear this. Because they were self-consciously fearful of asking. They they were afraid to ask what it might mean. Well, tell us more. Lord, this is upsetting. This is distressing. What is this going to mean? What is going to happen? No, we don't even want to talk about it. And... They were gripped with a threatening grief. They were afraid of what Jesus might further say. I find this very instructive in terms of our coming to difficult and hard things and the persistent teaching of Scripture. I've really tried to to search out my own heart and mind from the Word of God. I have a a struggle. I'll share this with you. Driving around, and I drive around churches all around here, some are historic uh, churches. Some have left their moorings and are no longer faithful to the gospel. Some are false cults that even use the name of Jesus. And I see their parking lots full. And I struggle. I struggle with that. And I reflect back on the word of God. And what I find is you must be true to the word of God and to the gospel of Christ. And it's plain. I mean, like we used Psalm 22 this morning. Scripture tells us what's true. We referenced 1 John 3. Scripture tells us what the righteousness is. Scripture tells us what the Holy Spirit witnesses to. And I said this morning, there are things that are plain and evident in Scripture that aren't ambiguous. And so in my heart and mind before God... I know that the plain and unambiguous true teaching of Scripture is in my heart and mind and has been preached and declared to you. 
Not with any human power persuasion. Not with any sense of, of, well, we're a better church than that church or I'm a better preacher than that preacher. I don't even care about any of that. I can honestly say that to you before God. I could care less. I care about being faithful. Faithful to the word of God and faithful to overwatching your souls and being able to answer to God with joy. And so I understand, and I'm a little bit sympathetic to the disciples here. I don't, I don't um, condone what they did, but in terms of their mind and conscience, I know they're struggling. So on a previous occasion, hearing Jesus on this same subject, you might remember, it's just one chapter before, chapter 8, by the way. So on a previous occasion, hearing Jesus on this same subject, Peter had been sharply rebuked by Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. This seems to have caused a measure of embarrassment and humiliation for the whole company of apostles. So as Jesus again reveals the crux of his messianic mission, and remember that's what Moses and Elijah conferred with him about in terms of the exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. And Peter, James, and John were there and had some measure of trying to connect the dots So Jesus once again reveals and persistently insists on the crux of his messianic mission and the apostles demonstrate common struggles of the mind and conscience when conflicted with scripture authority and the necessity of the humility of faith. Have you ever thought of that? Faith is humbling, isn't it? Faith is humbling and it says, I'm not in control. Faith is humbling when it says sometimes I don't even know what's going on. I don't even know what will happen next. Faith is humbling when it says I must trust God in the unseen. But I'm assured because of the Lord's promises and revelation and even the attestation of the Holy Spirit from God having manifest and demonstrated time and time and time again in my own personal life, his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his love, that he will not abandon me when I thought it was all up before, when I thought it was all over, when I thought there was no end, when I thought, forget it. In my case, even times when I thought, I'm not even called, what am I doing? If I was called to the ministry, surely things would have worked out differently. But not giving in to the weakness of the flesh, to the tricks of the mind, And to the false witness of conscience, but trusting God in his word to live humbly by faith. Faith that is humiliating because it surrenders everything to God and says, you know what is best. And you don't play tricks. You are our heavenly father. And oftentimes my mind comes in conflict with scripture. There is a... I think several biblical doctrines that have historically stirred up conflict with the mind and conscience between professing believers. I know you know this. You know that there is a struggle in mind and conscience between professing Christian believers over the sovereignty of God and salvation. I'm thankful to say that my my soul has been resolved of that conflict in trusting God and taking his word that God is sovereign in salvation. How about justification and perseverance by faith? By faith only, not supplemented by good works, but demonstrated by good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, made clear in Scripture what things please God, what things are considered good and approved by God. We're not justified, nor are we sanctified, or or do we supplement and add to our own justification or sanctification by these things. They are a demonstration of 
The power of God working in us and transformation and change and doing the things that please God. And we do it because we want to please Him out of a changed heart and a renewed mind and a submissive spirit. And so I'm thankful again. Wouldn't change anything of all the hardships, difficulties, and uncertainties. I wouldn't change anything to have come to that resolution of faith that justification and perseverance are by faith only. And then new covenant worship, including signs and seals of baptism and the Lord's Supper, replacing old covenant worship, including signs and seals of circumcision and the Passover. I'm so thankful that I'm not confused on that. I'm so thankful that I have embraced, and even as I prayed this morning, that we would improve our baptisms as the sign and seal that is given to us of not only our sins being washed away, but of our indwelling and and union with Christ. And what a, a... Reaffirmation and assurance of that comes to us in this Lord's Supper that the blood rite of Passover has been changed and replaced with the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper telling us by faith that Jesus is more real and present with us and will abide with us than this bread and this juice or wine will to our physical body. I'm so thankful to have that confirmed from the Word of God and assured in my own heart. How about uh, the Gospel having a changed relationship to the moral law of God. Oh, I'm so thankful for that, that we can uh, rejoice and, and thank God that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. No condemnation, but well, the right relationship with the law of God. The law is holy and just and good. And how is that so? Because we have a changed relationship through Jesus, the husband of the bride, his church. <laughs> And then the new covenant identity and meaning of the kingdom of God in heaven. I say to you and I rejoice that there is a a new covenant and with the new covenant comes a new kingdom because Jesus is the king and that kingdom is his church. Of what is Jesus the bridegroom? He is the bridegroom of his bride, the church. Of what is Jesus the head? He is the head of his body, the church. Of what is Jesus the king? He is the king of his kingdom, the church. And then the Christian church as the new Israel of God absorbing Old Testament earthly types into new covenant heavenly realities. Oh, when I read how rich that is and I'm transported out of earthbound thoughts and earthbound attempts to to press the promises and the works of God into my own mold. And I say, no, it's broken the old mold. And with the new covenant, the old covenant earthly types have been absorbed into heavenly realities. Read the book of Hebrews. So like the apostles in this episode, even Christians' human mind and conscience often resist the repeated scripture references while struggling with the implications that overturn our human creaturely and fleshly presumptions about how we think God ought to be. We have to be molded in our mind and in our heart from what the Word of God tells us that God is. God is, and He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, common to the struggle of humbly submitting to the difficult and otherworldly claims of Scripture is breaking the pattern of earthbound expectations. 
That's, a, that's such a challenge. We have certain expectations and we think, oh, our Christian faith and, and the work of God is going to be this way. And, and it's very easy for us to begin to try to press it into the mold of earthbound expectations. And that's why we need the sound preaching of the Word of God repeatedly and insistently presented to us. And Jesus being displayed in the essential repetition of the gospel over and over and over because we never outgrow it. And we're often threatened to be entangled and wooed away from it. So breaking the pattern of earthbound expectations. And and one of those is very evident and current in our own time. Those who think that the Christian faith is to be a life of material wealth and ease. Acknowledging the rule of God. Oh, if I live by the rule of God, then my God can beat up your God. We find that kind of sense of competition. One of the struggles that we have about outwardly observing the struggles and the disappointments of of, uh, a local faithful church and it not seeming to develop the way that we wanted it to, going through a life cycle and now faced with hard decisions. And we think, it's not the way we thought it should be. In terms of earthbound expectation, it should be different. Our God is greater than their God. Why isn't it showing itself that way? We have these earthbound expectations that, that, look, we're doing everything right. We're believing everything right. We're praying. We're meeting every Sunday. We're giving up of our own desires and saying, God, you're first. So why isn't it different? Why are we facing these hardships, these struggles, and these heartbreaking uncertainties? We're not the only ones who have faced those things. We're going to go on in this passage. I hope you'll be reading ahead through the rest of the chapter because there's some very important things that come along these lines to instruct us. Just in verses 33 through 37, next week we're going to look at the response of of the disciples when they change the subject. And Jesus says, by the way, when I was intently teaching you and I was over and over rehearsing for you, the matter I was committing and saying is important for you that we don't have time to take a, um, a vacation or a, a, a trip down memory lane for me to tell you what it was like to grow up in Galilee. And I don't want any public ministry going on during this time. I am going to teach you about what's coming at Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, violently, unlawfully killed, but I will rise again on the third day. Over and over I was pressing that on you. And what were you talking about on the way? Hmm. How do we define greatness? What is success? How about human accomplishments? Recognition. Who's going to be greatest in your kingdom, Lord? What authority do we have? We, we saw some over here. We don't know them. And they were using your name. We told them to shut up. Commanding officer rank. Lord, what are we going to have in the kingdom? What are we going to be? Who are we going to tell what to do? Judgment and power to punish. Let's call down fire from heaven on them. Jesus says, you don't even know what you're talking about. You listened to nothing I had to say. And so I want you to listen. 
I want us to learn from what Jesus has to say about reproving and correcting his own apostles here before the resurrection and how we are called in humility to live by faith and face hard and difficult things that we want to change the subject. We don't have a category to put that in. This doesn't fit. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And we're afraid. I'm afraid. Afraid to say goodbye. <laughs> afraid I won't ever preach anymore. Yeah, I'll share it with you. But we live by faith and we're called to trust the Lord. And to look back from his word and by the witness of his spirit and to say, without being sinless, I know I have sin. I know I struggle with my doubts. I know the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit of what John says about what is righteous and there is a righteousness that God approves that I have received from Christ. And I know I'm doing God's will. And I know I'm not hiding sin. And I know I'm not trying to, to play word games with God or with you or with my own conscience. Where does that leave me? And where does that leave us? Will we trust God and will we live by faith? And not try to press into the mold of earthbound expectations. What the word of God says we need to hear intently and clearly about the things that matter to God. So we're going to go on in this passage. There's so much to learn. And I really want you to keep in mind how significant this is in the chronology of the earthly life and ministry, public ministry of Jesus, that this is coming about in that chapter that started with the transfiguration. So I hope you'll keep that in mind and in scope of, um, of the, these passages and as we go on here in, in Mark chapter 9. And as a part of that, I, I want us to be encouraged in faith and to God's ordinary means here in the Lord's Supper this morning that God has appointed to assure us when our heart condemns us. John says, if your heart condemns us, God is greater than your heart. Do you know this Lord's Supper and the testimony and witness of the Holy Spirit is greater than the doubts and uncertainties that we have? That's why we rejoice to often receive this Lord's Supper and the promise that Jesus is greater in his presence with us than these elements are to our physical senses. Do you doubt this is bread? You've heard me ask you that many times. In plain and simple <laughs> language, right? This is bread. You don't doubt that it's bread. It's not a slice of apple. It's bread. Why would you doubt Jesus then? Do you doubt that this is wine or juice? And you make your choice, don't you? You make your choice if you want the wine or if you want the juice. And you know that it's not blood, thankfully. You know that it's not something else. It's not Coca-Cola. You know that it's either wine or juice. Why would you doubt Jesus saying, my blood is sufficient? If I died for you, you think I'm going to leave you? I've sent you the Holy Spirit to assure you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So, you know what Jesus says, how we've identified with him in baptism, and how we've witnessed uh, taking vows of membership. You know how the scriptures warn us not to be holding back unconfessed sin. And oftentimes we think of that unconfessed sin as being against someone else, or hard feelings, or perhaps we've struggled with some issue of the flesh or whatever. 
But I also want you to consider not doubting the Lord. Don't be held back. Ask the Lord to strengthen and to encourage you not to give up and not to lose hope and to know that he will not take away from us what he has so generously given.